You're listening to EOD Gear Improvised with your host, former Navy EOD tech and owner of EOD Gear, Steve Cassidy. Steve Cassidy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining in. I'm super excited. I have Tom Gersbeck uh, on the line, and uh, we're going to spend some time talking about what he's doing. Uh, Just a brief history about Tom, United States Marine, EOD, uh, started as an enlisted man, uh, achieved the rank of gunny, and then actually retired as a warrant officer. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Navy and Marine Corps, if you're a warrant officer, uh, you have to have something like achieve the rank of E7, maybe 12 years of service, and be considered the subject matter expert in whatever it is you do to become a warrant officer. Uh, And Tom has done that. Uh, Tom has also, uh, after exiting, was a U.S. Uh, Federal Air Marshal, did tours in Afghanistan, Iraq, Tanzania, Cambodia, India, and was named a fellow with the uh, American Academy of Forensic Science. So just uh, super accomplished. Tom is also the author of Practical Military Ordnance Identification, which is a textbook-style ordnance Uh, book that's used in a lot of the university programs. So, uh, Tom, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, I was honored to have you uh, at our shop in Huntsville a few weeks ago, and I'm certainly honored to have you on the show here, and I'm sure all our listeners are going to get a lot of great information. And, uh, you know, just really thanks again for coming in. I see that you had 14 years of, you know, it took 14 years to finish your master's degree. And, and that screams patience to me, which is something I think a lot of people don't have a lot of, uh, especially in the short time and what they're trying to do with the career. Can you kind of go over your like 14 years, what all was going on during then? Absolutely. And Steve, just one editorial note is uh, I wasn't a flying uh, federal air marshal. I was with the uh, federal air marshals uh, explosives division and I was uh, the explosive security specialist uh, in the Philadelphia field office and then went down to DC and, uh, spent time as a staff officer as well, uh, and ended up a, a branch chief in canine. But uh, I wasn't a flying fan. Just uh, ju- just wanted to clarify that. <clears throat> it, Perfect. Concerning um, uh, night school, it was uh, I, uh, a marine I was stationed with was doing some night school classes, and uh, I, I thought it was a good idea. I started taking classes. I was in First Anglico at the time, which is a an naval gunfire liaison company. It's uh, like, like a forward observer uh, type uh, organization where you work with NATO nations. And and actually, it was my time there that realized how much I enjoyed working in the smaller teams, more of a specialized type capacity. And that's when I ended up looking uh, and finding EOD when I knew I was going to be returning to the big battalions, the big regiments in the Marine Corps. So uh, I had started doing some night school then and actually befriended uh, a gentleman, uh, Ben Cassiopo. Uh, we had, both ended up in EOD uh, as warrant officers, and he ended up staying on long-term, retired as a major, did very well for himself. Uh, but we used to commute back and forth to night school when we were corporals. And uh, so after coming into EOD, the, the one thing I certainly realized is that I can take a test. So uh, what I started doing was uh, I would take classes, uh, but then I started taking club tests and the Dante's exams. Uh, When I would come out of, I would prep and study like crazy for the test. After I took the test, regardless of how well I thought I did, 
I would come out, sit in my car, and I would highlight everything on my notes that I recalled from the test. Because if you fail the test, you can retake it in six months. So I had a 100% retest rate. Because <laughs> then I knew, what, nice. I knew what to study. But um, at the, the only test worth studying for is the retest. Absolutely. But what I ended up doing was every, uh, uh, every class that didn't have a, a Clepidante's exam are the ones that I started taking. And I was able, and of course, I applied all my military credits as well, but I was able to uh, start bringing that all together uh, where I had uh, 51 club credits, uh, 45 went towards my degree. I, I did things like, oh, uh, for example, I don't know anything about uh, economics. So I took uh, microeconomics. Now I could understand the questions. I would clip out macroeconomics. Uh, accounting one and two was a six credit clip. So I don't know anything about accounting. I took accounting one, studied for accounting two, took the clip and only the back three credits counted. Uh, so I, I was able to put that all together. I uh, finished a bachelor's degree through Park College, which is Park University. Now they had the uh, contract on, uh, on Camp Pendleton. Uh, by that time, I was a brand new warrant officer one. And then I uh, first started with a master's in education. I just kind of decided I I wasn't really done yet. I just wanted to see how far I could push myself on it. And uh, I found it a positive, positive way of occupying my time. So I uh, started for a master's in education with Central Michigan and found that to be far too much philosophical nonsense. I I just, it wasn't my thing. So I'm a little more of a science minded person, a cause and effect. So I found a forensics program applied for it, and I was able to use all of my EOD school curriculum and uh, follow-on EOD schools, post-blast investigation and other courses like that, uh, to show that I had enough chemistry, biology, and physics uh, education uh, that I was able to have waived all of the prerequisites uh, required for the forensics uh, master's program. And I was able to go straight into the program without having to take a lot of prerequisite courses. And then I, uh, uh, the master's, once I got into the forensic sciences is where I found that I do this every day at work. It's very, very applicable to EOD. And, uh, and I just found that writing papers and doing research, I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed doing the research, writing the papers, and I found that they all applied to what I did every day at work. Uh, and I, I just absolutely enjoyed going through that program, and it was uh, it was very good. And uh, the masters, I, I finished much faster than than any uh, any of the previous degrees. Well, I think um, you know a lot of people will get a degree or a master's degree and kind of look for the job, and you kind of tailored your degree to what you were doing and what you loved, which is super smart. Uh, but then you know you also worked with sexy uh, and some of the other forensic sides of VOD. And uh, could you, can you kind of tell us like how that all tied in together? Certainly. Well, I was uh, part of when I was with the Federal Air Marshal Service and I, I took a promotion and moved down to DC, which turned out it, it was great. I loved the work. I loved the job, but the commute down there will absolutely kill you. And I lasted three years. And I, I told my wife one day, I says, I, I just can't, I just cannot stay here anymore. I, I need to go do something. And this was in uh, late 2009, early 2010. The casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time were, were uh, exceedingly high. I really That was bad then. And I had, 
Yeah, keep in mind, I had retired about six months before 9-11. So I, I really uh, I felt like I, I wanted to, to try to give back to do something. And um, uh, so I saw an opportunity. Uh, actually, Steve McGonquit, retired lieutenant colonel, who was also uh, an LDO and former warrant officer, uh, was able to get me connected with folks who were looking for people at the time. And I was able to get on a contract where I uh, helped with the build out of an uh, expeditionary uh, sexy lab. And then I flew with it uh, into Afghanistan, uh, right from Indian Head. And it, it turned out to be one of the best professional experiences of my career because we built the lab from scratch, uh, set everything up, uh, began accepting cases, and, and uh, it, it was from uh, soup to nuts, uh, taking a lab from the States and uh, it, it was a fantastic experience, but um, uh, what, what I kind of, uh, you know, getting back to the forensics piece is the biometric lab, uh, that, that's really the bottleneck in, in, a, in a sexy type configuration uh, or an ACME or any of the, uh, the even the EAC, your, your biometrics ends up being the long, uh, pulling the tent for getting the evidence moving along because it's a lot of time consuming processes. Uh, so what I started doing was I would just carry a case from the triage lab down to biometrics. There was a certified latent print examiner in there who was absolutely phenomenal. And it was a simple deal. Uh, you teach me, uh, you teach me stuff and I will work for you. And he was quite happy with that because he needed the assistance. And I was happy because I was then in essence studying under a tremendously experienced man, uh, and I processed in the ballpark of a little more than 100 cases uh, as a forensic technician doing that. Uh, later, when I had other triage technicians coming in to work for me, I first suggested that they go spend some time in biometrics because when you see, and as well as the EE lab, just helping out, because when you see how, how they conduct business, you can... There's more than one way to process just about anything, you know, more than nine ways to skin a cat type of scenario. And a few of those ways may make the next person in the food chain's life miserable. A couple of those ways may make it much easier for them to obtain better forensic uh, results and evidence. So uh, I thought it was important to kind of learn a little bit more about what everybody else does around you. Uh, so I would make them go work in the other labs throughout the sexy. And it turned out, in my opinion, to be uh, a wealth of information because I really, I feel now that I have a much better understanding of what other professions and fields do. Man, that's fantastic. I, but, you know, but I mean, that speaks to you as a person as well, being able to see something and do the, do the little bit extra, you know, to go learn something. And you might have other people who are forced to say, hey, I need you to go over there. And they may not really realize the opportunity that's there. Yeah, it was not very popular. I had some folks fought me tooth and nail. They absolutely wanted no part of doing that for the life of me. I, I just don't understand that mentality. Uh, you, you know, if you're going to act like you know everything, go try, try to do so. You know, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's 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 the journey. Yeah, be, the end result is isn't isn't what's exciting. It's the journey, and you know, as a professional career, and to go through there. I mean, why sit around there and be bored, uh, and not you know try to push it forward and make yourself you know, and even in the civilian marketplace, make yourself infinitely more more employable than the other person 
that you may be competing Absolutely, against. Absolutely, yeah. And the old adage, you don't know what you don't know. You're going to, it's an opportunity to learn something. So we have, uh, you know, we may have some young people listening in uh, who are thinking about a career in the military or thinking about a career in EOD and whether that's military or the public safety route. I mean, what do you tell them? I mean, I, I try to encourage them. I say, at least take a look at it. And of course, I always tell them, say, look, I'm not going to take any credit for you getting through the program because I'm certainly not taking any blame. So, you know, it's a kind of a grown up decision to to really take a look at that and do something which, you know, looking back was pretty remarkable and, and very fortunate that I was able to be in that program. So like, what would you tell young people? Because I, you know, I think it means a lot because you come from both sides, being enlisted, going through the officer rank, getting your degree, getting your master's degree, accomplishing all these uh, professional milestones, actually, and, and you continue to do that, you know, what do you, what do you tell people? Well, what, what I'll use is to kind of shift off that, the EOD thing, because uh, uh, to avoid sounding as if I'm beating a drum, I'll, uh, I'll shift gears and, and use D, a DNA analyst as an example. So uh, first off, as far as the military goes, uh, I'm certainly an advocate uh, because there's a, a back to the you don't know what you don't know, and you learn so many things in the military that have nothing to do with shooting and, and you, you, camping and the other things that you do a bit of. You, you learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about dealing with people, leading people, how to be led, uh, how, to, how to take an order, how to give an order, how to get things done. Uh, it's, a, uh, it, it's a group and team effort, whether you want it to be or not. Uh, and, if you, and, you, and you learn a lot of those skills when you're in the military. Um, but when it also comes to the military, you have a lot of civilian GS positions within the military as well, all four branches of service, uh, the Department of Defense in general. And uh, <clears throat> what I found is uh, I uh, uh, speaking with this one DNA analyst in Afghanistan who returned to the States worked for the army for a few more years and then transferred to ATF. Now she's working for ATF. And I was speaking with her one day and I asked her, I said, would you have, would you suggest or recommend that a DNA analyst consider going to uh, the military? And she said, absolutely. And the, the reason she told me, I thought was quite interesting. She said that if not for her time in the army as a GS civilian, uh, she never would have secured the position that she has now with ATF. And, and I asked, uh, well, why? And she said, well, the one thing about the Department of Defense is the Army is always hiring. Uh, the ATF, FBI, all these other federal agencies, they hire only at certain times of the year and very sparingly. And the competition, you know, you're competing against, you know, probably 10, 15,000 people for every position. Where in the army you may be competing against 100 to 200 people for every position, but as long as you have the proper education and you, you know you, you you meet the criteria, you, you're competitive. And then once you get there and you can prove yourself, uh, that's where you're going to get the evaluation reports and those type of things that'll support you moving to any other federal agency. So and or a state agency or other labs, you're going to get that relevant experience. And the way the labs was set up in Afghanistan, you didn't have to do a lot of the paperwork in that that you have to do in the, in the States. And she said that within about a six-month tour, 
Uh, she got ooh, in the ballpark of what would have taken her about 10 years worth of experience in the United States. So it, it you know, it's not just. That's huge to crush, crush six months or 10 years worth of work down into yeah, six and months. And you're working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, yeah. but so is everybody else. So it's not, well, what it's else not are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. You're not going to go out fishing on the weekends. There's no place to go. Right. I mean, you're, it's not an option and you just immerse yourself in the environment. And once again, you, you learn, you learn an awful lot about yourself when you're doing that as well. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. So we've gone through our careers. We're getting ready to get out. And I know, you know, it's odd if you've spent 20, 25, 30, 32 years in the military and you're getting ready to go out to the civilian marketplace. You know, that's, uh, I think anytime you change jobs, you know, it can be stressful. You know, what are, what are employers looking for out here, you know, for the EOD tech, master crab, 20, 20 to 30 years experience, or at least 20, 30 years in the military? Um, you know, what are, what are some, what are some good, uh, do's and don'ts? Well, of course, if you come out with any kind of an education and, uh, you, you know, tours that are outside the, the norm of EOD, where you did do some sexy tours and you did go down and work in the biometrics lab, or you did do, uh, work in the, uh, in the, uh, electrical engineering lab or et cetera, et cetera. You, you've broadened yourself out a bit while you were in the military. And of course, if you picked up any uh, degrees, not, not just uh, attending a one-week course here and a one-week course there, uh, regardless of what they're about, uh, in the civilian world, honestly, no, nobody really cares. Uh, that, that's just part of whatever your main job was, and everybody is expected to do uh, career-enhancing type uh, training such as that. But when you have those formal degrees, that makes you much more marketable. Uh, because if you have uh, a master badge with 25 years, and I have a master badge with 25 years and a bachelor's degree, they're more competitive. It doesn't matter what branch of service they were in, how many tours they did, and all that other th all those other things. Because the civilian employer is looking military, 25 years, but this person has a degree. Now, of course, if you have a master's degree, you're just that much more marketable. But uh, Probably the biggest, well, it also depends what a person wants to do when they get out. Uh, some people want to stay working in the field and they may go into UXO type work. And there's a tremendous uh, uh, market there uh, for folks to get some very good work. Uh, and they can uh, really go in a lot of different directions once they're out in that community too. They can get into heavy equipment operations, get additional pay. They can work in chemical. They can specialize in different areas and get some very good contracts. They can work overseas for the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, some folks go into demining and get into the IMAS, the International Mine Action Standards, and start doing training or operating in those areas for, you know, to, uh, the Mine Action Group, MAG, or Halo Trust, or uh, uh, Golden West. Love Halo uh, Trust. Uh, Golden West, which is uh, an American uh, NGO mm -hmm. uh, working in Cambodia and uh, throughout the South Pacific. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities, but probably the biggest, the biggest negative I would say is uh, once again back to that you don't know what you don't know, and oftentimes people come out with a tremendous attitude. Uh, hey, when I was in, I was. You know, an E8, E9, uh, chief warrant officer, uh, uh, an officer, an O2, an O3. And uh, I had you know, 20, 25, 30 years of experience. Uh, I was the man. You know, that's, that, that, that's great. Uh, that's what's going to get you the job. 
but you have to remember that when you're starting with this new company in this new world, uh, you're also the new guy and you're not going to start at the top. Nobody's going to hire you to run a company or even run a team. They're going to hire you to be a member of a team to make sure that your resume isn't fudged, that you are who you say you are, and then you'll have an opportunity to work your way up. And probably uh, that, that's probably the biggest problem I see with uh, an awful lot of vets, not just from the EOD field, from all fields. A lot of people have a lot of problem with that. And uh, I, I don't. I, I, I think it's like anything else. You, you, you prove yourself, you earn your keep, and you, you have an opportunity to promote and move up. Uh, but I really... Yeah, I think there's... Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's if you're used to that military structure and you come into the civilian marketplace, which d- doesn't normally have that military structure, that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. If if you have to live in that structure, you know, that's probably going to be kind of limiting on you. But if you if you're in a more of an open structure where you know it's more civilian paced, I mean, you know, when when we talk about doing a half day's work, you know, that's twelve yeah. hours. Where anybody else, it's like maybe four. So context is everything. And being able to be super flexible and understand, yeah, I'm not in the military anymore. You still bring that work Absolutely. ethic, but you don't. You just have to be a little more flexible with those that maybe say don't have context of that. And there's an old saying when uh, w- with recruiters and such, when you're uh, uh, when being hired, it's your your resume gets you the interview. The interview gets you the job. Uh, so if you have a great resume. Right. And that gets you into an interview room and you walk in with an attitude. Folks are going to say, this person isn't going to fit in well with my team, that you're not going to get the job. Or, of course, um, um, someone may offer you to, hey, let's go out to lunch and have a beer and, you, you know, talk. And, of course, most military guys figure, oh, I have this in the bag. You know, this guy wants to go have a couple of beers and, and you, you know, talk shop. Uh, absolutely not. What that is is part of the interview. And uh, if you go out and you start uh, slamming beers and um, uh, starting in with the sea stories, it's probably not going to go so well. Uh, so you ju- just remember, until you actually start day <laughs> one, every interaction that you have with a potential employer is part of the interview. Gotcha. Well, uh, you know, you've been uh, working on some pretty big projects you know, throughout your career, uh, like a lot of those we've covered it, and we did touch on a little bit of your book, uh, Practical Military Ordinance Identification, and uh, uh, thank you for sending me that copy, and I want to recommend everybody, if you're having anything to do with ordinance, uh, whether military, active duty, OD, bomb squad, uh, or just in the civilian place, it's a fantastic reference book to have. Uh, even if you're a UXO Tech 1, I think this is a book you'd want to have. Uh, you know, as a go-to to study, but in the process of creating this, this book, I mean, what, and, and, and the book is available on Amazon and, uh, from the, the publisher CRC, uh, you know, what was, what was the process for this book? What, well, what the, all brought the, the this book, about? The book started, I had, I had written uh, a couple of ordinance manuals, uh, ordinance ID type manuals, more, more student manual, uh, type configurations. And, uh, as I was working my way through the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, because uh, when you first join there, you, you join as an affiliate member, and you actually have to promote to member, and then promote to fellow if you if you if you stick around and do all the things that you have to do. But while I was working my way through that process, 
uh, I befriended uh, uh, a professor from Purdue who was also a former Marine Vietnam veteran and also a uh, retired um, uh, Cook County uh, around Chicago. And he had been one of the original CSI members back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, and that, that, that was a very new concept in those days. And just a tremendously experienced man. And we were talking one time, and he, of course, is a little more in tune with what military ordinance is all about. Uh, his name's Patrick Jones, by the way. He's now retired. He's uh, well into his 80s. And uh, uh, we were talking, and he said something about military ordinance, and it's always showing up out in town, and, you know, you should write a book about that. And then he says, hold on a second. And he walks across the room, and he gets Vern Gabreth, who's uh, the retired chief of detectives from NYPD, who had written a book on homicide investigation titled Practical Homicide Investigation for uh, CRC Press. And the book was such a hit, I believe now it's in its sixth or seventh edition. Uh, they came back and offered Vern uh, the opportunity to have a forensic book series. So Vern came over. Now, having been the retired chief of detectives, all of the NYPD bomb technicians are detectives. So technically, they were all working for him. So he was very well aware of the calls that those men are going out on all the time. And he knows that they were encountering a lot of military ordinance. So he and I and Pat are sitting, sitting talking. And he asked me, he said, hey, I'd like you to write a book for my series. To which I thought, why? And, and then he explained it to me from his perspective, because these things show up out in town. These guys are not getting formal training in this area, which then it clicked because in 1997, I attended HDS as a, as a monitor, uh, as an active duty military with Pase Comitatus. You can't go through that school as a student. So I monitored the class, but I took all the exams and did everything. I just received a monitor certificate versus a student certificate. So I certainly know what their training was all about. And they, all they did was a, about a two-hour tour through an Army uh, EOD shop, and that was the extent of their ordinance. So I started researching it. I said, let, let me research the topic, and I'll get back to you. I started researching and found that depending upon where you're at in the United States, a public safety bomb squad averages anywhere between 30% to 70% of their calls involve military ordinance. Even in places where there's absolutely no military bases, no military personnel, still 30% of their calls involve military ordinance. When you get into high density areas, I would say around San Diego, where there's a lot of bases, about 70% of their calls involve military ordinance. And they receive no training on it whatsoever. And they're told to call the military. Well, that's, that's fine if, if they're not deployed. Well, after 9-11, of course, you, military everyone's deployed so everyone's now, of course, deployed. You, you, you're in a quandary and the reality is the bomb squad's told go do your job well we're waiting on the military for what go do your job they're not going to keep highways closed or stores closed while they wait two or three days for a military od team to show up it, it's and that's just the reality of how things work so um uh, i started looking at the book from that perspective but very quickly realized that park rangers, archaeologists, uh, the Coast Guard, uh, there are a lot of people out there that could benefit from this, uh, UXO technicians, uh, D-miners. And uh, so I started to r realize that th this would be beneficial for a number of communities. Uh, so that's when I dove into it. Now, 
Uh, also, if you look at CRC Press, and the, the print, that's why the book is titled Practical Military Ordinance ID, because all of the books in that series start with the word practical. Uh, and if you uh, look at that Practical Forensic series uh, chaired by Vern Gabreth, I believe he's up to about 40, 42 books. And you can pretty much, if you're interested in forensics, you can find anything in there. Uh, for example, Tom Thurman's book on uh, practical bomb scene investigation. I believe Tom's is now in his third edition. And uh, uh, that's the same book series as, uh, as my book. And there are some very, whatever your interest is in forensics, you can find a book in that series uh, that you can read uh, that's going to fall within whatever area of interest you have. Fantastic. Well, man, I just congratulations on that. I mean, it's uh, is it only available in English? Uh, and, the, and the reason I ask is I was stationed in Italy for off and on for seven years and would deploy around, but it was, you know, World War II, World War One, French-Prussian War. Uh, I think on the ERW side, I mean, they have stuff going back to, you know, the late uh, 19th century, and, um, you know, I think uh, I read where it, just in France, they were pulling out 400 pound net explosive weight daily of ordinance items. So I wasn't sure if the book was available in French uh, or Spanish. No, but or, that is actually a very interesting question because apparently it's um, uh, 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 many folks in uh, uh, Latvia, Belgium, and now the, uh, the Netherlands, the, um, the, the, the equivalent of their federal police, uh, are now uh, 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 picking up copies of it. But, uh, you, you know, what you mentioned about the older ordinance coming up is, uh, and, and you, you actually touched on a couple of things that are uh, really have, have me thinking right now. So uh, first off, uh, the, the older ordinance, uh, in the original version of the book, I did not really go, go past uh, high explosives in ordinance. I kind of left it at that. Uh, in the second edition, I added that entire chapter on pre-1900 ordinance, because in 1902 is when the Germans first started using TNT and projectiles. They were the first ones to put a high explosive uh, in projectiles. So I used 1900 as a break point because it's easy to remember. Uh, but I, I went way back before then, and I, I think that helped bring a better perspective as to the ordinance that we have today. We didn't start making last week. It, there, there was a whole evolution of engineering and chemistry and desired physics that result in what we have today. And understanding a little more on how we got here is very helpful uh, from a safety perspective as well as a hazards perspective. But uh, what you said about uh, uh, French and, uh, you, for example, French or, or when you were in Italy, uh, one of the biggest problems you find it is the language barrier. So, for example, when I was training D-miners in Cambodia, uh, they had a uh, they were taking English classes uh, five days a week for about three, four hours a day. And it was more, it was speaking, but a lot of it was more the reading, how to read English. And it's really because the best references for military ordinance uh, tend to be in English. Even if it's older uh, German publications, French publications, Italian publications from the 1800s, they've, if they haven't been translated, they will be or can be very easily to English, where going the other way is just a lot more difficult. So taking the uh, the American uh, publications and 
converting it or translating it to different languages. However, you can put that Google Translate right on your phone now <laughs> and hover it over a page. I mean, that would, yeah. that would take forever to try to get through something. Uh, but that's also why I added an awful lot of graphics and tried to add a lot of uh, uh, the line drawing type graphics in the book. Well, your logic trees, the logic tree uh, section you have in the back. And the that's what a lot of those, those are, are trying those are to drive is uh, simplicity, ju just to, to keep it simple. Because uh, when you're on a call, you really just want to keep it simple. But for someone who uh, doesn't really have mastered the English language very well, hopefully that uh, more uh, simple breakdown uh, helps them uh, be able to translate it a little bit easier. Uh, the last thing you want to do is make things super complex when you're already involved in any kind of an EOD or ordinance-related response. It's, uh, uh, that's just not the time to make things hard. It's already hard enough. Exactly. Well, uh, so kind of going forward, you know, as, as the community, you know, what are you seeing as far as threats? I mean, you know, you can turn on the news and you see North Korea, you see Syria, you see Iran, uh, the Straits of Hormuz, you know, the Korean Peninsula. You know, what are, what are you looking to? And as far as technology now with hypersonics, ultrasonics, uh, you know, what are, you know, WMD? Where, where, what are you looking at as, you know, down the road in the next five, 10 years? Well, in 3D printing, and in order to keep things a little more, say, in the ordinance realm, one of the problems now, and you're seeing this in demining, is... Uh, what is the definition of a of a landmine versus an IED? And uh, you, you say, okay, well, um, it was mass manufactured and it was uh, uh, made to a specific standard and inspected to that standard. Okay, great. I can show you all kind of documents. Matter of fact, if you look at CAR, uh, Conflict Arms Research, uh, they're based out of the United States, and they do a lot of research on ordnance stockpiles uh, and a uh, uh, a lot of research into ISIS and mass manufacturing, terrorist groups, mass manufacturing, and they've testified in many trials as experts, and uh, they just do an absolutely phenomenal job. And um, th they've really broken into this quite well, where you can see a lot of documents with uh, pictures of ISIS inspection stamps on 200 millimeter, uh, 100 millimeter mortars. Uh, okay, but you know, is that a written standard that I can read? So is that a manufactured piece of ordinance or is it an IED or an improvised ordinance item? And uh, that debate's been going on for quite a while. Uh, I don't think it's gonna end soon. It's still, if you, uh, it, it's more of, uh, it has to be built by a recognized country, uh, inspected to a recognized standard and uh, made to meet those standards. But uh, when you're seeing items in Afghanistan and uh, all around the world where you're seeing, say, landmines and, and they're being made by the, the tens of thousands, if not bigger numbers than that, it, it's kind of hard to say that this isn't a manufactured item, yet it's still technically an IED. So what they've done now is the IMAS training has changed considerably just in the last four or five years. And now the uh, International Mine Action Standards training for D-miners includes um, a very large IED piece, and they're getting heavy into IEDs and improvised ordnance, uh, mainly because they have to, because the, these D-miners are encountering it all the time. <laughs> these folks are being killed, 
So if you don't train them on it, they're going to continue being killed and you're going to not be able to fill positions and get areas cleared. And it's not just mines, of course, because any area where you're conducting a demining operation, if it was a contested area and somebody put a minefield there, you're going to be encountering normally about a five to one ratio, about five uh, UXO or uh, explosive remnants of war, meaning it might be a projectile or a rifle grenade and it may not have been deployed, it may have been dropped. Uh, so different considerations for taking care of it. Or of course, it could be booby-trapped and purposefully left behind as a booby trap. Uh, and you have to consider all of that while you're trying to clear the mines at the same time. Fantastic. So we'll get pretty close to wrapping it up here for today. And, and really, thank you so much. I want to, I mean, we could have you on, you know, 15 more times uh, to dig deeper into your, your incredible career and, and what's rolling around in your brain. Uh, if you could, you know, my, my one last question is if you could go back, say 20, 30 years or, you know, to your first day of boot camp, what would you, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, strap in. I, uh, uh, I, 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 I finished high school in 79. Uh, I graduated from uh, Brentwood, New York. And if anybody listening to this is familiar with Brentwood, New York high school. It's not, not a, not a great neighborhood, not a, not, not the best of schools. And, uh, uh, I graduated school there in 79. I uh, worked in a factory uh, for just shy of two years. And that's when I realized I, I need to get out of here. And I was 19 years old when I joined the Marine Corps and, and left with a guarantee for mechanical and electrical. So I, uh, on the ASVAB test, I showed I had a, a good aptitude for mechanics and uh, electronics. So I ended up as a truck mechanic or a motor transport mechanic in an artillery unit. And uh, uh, a lot of folks say, well, then if you were a mechanic in the military, when you get out, you have to be a mechanic. Now, no, you don't. Uh, th there's absolutely no door that's closed to you. If uh, And if it is closed, go knock on it. See who's in there. See what they're doing. Uh, see if you can get into that, too. And it's uh, uh, just never stop looking. You don't know what you don't know. So search and find and ask as many questions and you will find your calling. You will figure out what it is that you're here and meant to do. And, uh, and if I may, Steve, um, what I'm doing now is I teach at Oklahoma State University. And uh, what we have here at OSU is a, uh, a master's program and actually the PhD program launches in two weeks, actually, sorry, in one week when the semester begins. And it's uh, the Arson Explosive Firearms and Toolbox Investigation Graduate Program. It's restricted access. You have to be either in the military, federal service, working in state, county. Uh, you have to be working as some sort of an official capacity, either as a bomb technician, a fire investigator, a uh, intelligence personnel, laboratory person uh, in firearms and tool marks, uh, chemistry of explosives, uh, or have any responsibility for processing fire or explosives debris for post-blast investigation or uh, potential loss in investigation. Arson, of course, is a conclusion. It's all fire investigation until you determine it to be an arson. But uh, if, uh, if anybody is interested in the program, uh, certainly have them uh, reach out to me and I'll uh, be able to send you the information. It's uh, a rather new program. It's been in existence now for five years. We just finished our fifth year. So uh, the word is still getting out. 
Do you have an email address Absolutely. or a website that Absolutely. people can go the, to the, the to check that out? The best way would actually be to email me, and then I can send you the links. Uh, uh, sometimes the links are troublesome. Uh, but my email is tom, T-O-M, dot, my last name, Gersbeck, which is G-E-R-S-B-E-C-K, at Oklahoma State, or I'm sorry, OK, abbreviated, okstate.edu. So the whole email is tom.gersbeck at okstate.edu. Hey, thank you very much, Steve. Go Cowboys. <laughs> Tom, thanks again so much. Everybody, uh, if you're interested in a PhD program uh, in forensics or explosives, uh, certainly give Tom, drop him a line. And really encourage everybody to go pick up a copy of Practical Military Ordnance Identification. It will be uh, certainly worth the investment to crack this book open and have this as a go-to reference in your library. And, uh, you know, just really, uh, you know, nothing else really can say about how, how great it is. Uh, it's, it was a, you know, even though I'm not actively, you know, doing anything other than running the company now, it was fantastic to be able to look at that and wish that I had it. Uh, back in the day. So, Tom, thanks again. Really appreciate it. And uh, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to EOD Gear Improvised. Improvised. With explosive discussions and sound effects. Steve Cassidy, a former Navy EOD tech and owner of EOD Gear. Initial success or total failure. Two locations, one in Nashville and one in Huntsville. The website is eod-gear.com. And you can also see our catalog as an app on Google Play. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. EOD Gear has customers from around the globe. Stand by. Until next time, this is EOD Gear Improvised. Signing off.